Hi, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, Colossians 1 this morning. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. Let's pray, shall we? Father, as we come to our text this morning, I pray that you would give us, as you've been faithful to this church before, that you would give us 30, 40 more minutes of your faithfulness. I ask that as I exposit and as these words go forth, Father, that you would let them sink into all of our hearts. And God, that you would help me speak well for your name's sake. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, in our evangelical churches, what happens is the hymnal has often been replaced here with a compendium of almost self-worshipping music. And don't hear me wrong here. I'm more than, than happy to welcome new contributions uh, to, to our, our modern uh, hymnals. But the thing about a hymn is that it teaches us good theology and it elevates Christ. I was recently at a conference, and one of the most amazing things about the conference was hearing 12,000 voices plus singing praises to God and also to each other. It was powerful to give fresh voice to both new and old hymns. And our Bibles are full of this kind of poetry, and that's what it is, that's what a hymn is. And we create these hymns, and oftentimes we'll, we'll, we find these type, this type of literature in the Psalter, and also sometimes in the Old Testament prophets. But this morning, we get to hear a little bit of verse and prose from Paul in Colossians. Now, I will admit here that some sources question as to what extent our passage this morning is a Christological hymn, but whatever the genre may be, the important thing here is that it elevates Christ. It concerns Christ and his ascendancy. Poetry has been written about all kinds of things, from females to the beauty of creation to philosophical ideas and the sufferings of life. But some poems, some hymns, help us to look at Christ and to raise him above all else in our hearts and our minds. They tell us why he is praiseworthy. That's what our text does this morning. So, let's jump in. Starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Word of the Lord. 
So let's uh, preview where we will be headed and review where um, we have been here. So we're entering into the book of Colossians cold. So I want to warm up with a bit of context here. So we find Paul in the first two verses here giving uh, an introduction And then verses 3 to 14 here, we find him giving thanks for the church, praying for the church, and extending to them a fresh reminder of the gospel. uh, Paul had heard from Epaphras, their local minister, that the Colossians were succumbing to certain philosophies and heresies. So in typical Pauline fashion, he writes up this defense about Christ. So we come to our passage now, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So here's our outline this morning. should be in the bulletin. If not, you can write it down here. We have Christ is paramount over creation in verse 15 through 17. Christ is principal in the church in verse 18. And Christ is primary in reconciliation. He's paramount over creation. He's principal in the church. And he's primary in reconciliation. And as we move through our passage this morning, Paul's going to reiterate over and over again from from different points of, of view why the Colossians should hold Christ as supreme. We're going to be answering that question as well. So don't be surprised if we hear kind of again and again Because what he's doing is he's eroding the church of the bad heresy, and he does this through through sort of a poetic repetition. It's really great. Let's jump in. Under the first heading, Christ is paramount over creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The text says he's the image of the invisible God. And what's being said here is that God has revealed himself in Christ. In Genesis, we read in a familiar passage, chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, follow me here as we work through a couple different cross-references. You can jot them down if you'd like to do so. We're going to move quickly here. Um, uh, the first here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The second, in the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God has made himself known in the Son, manifested in Christ, fully God and fully human. Where Moses was unable to see uh, the glory of God, essentially unable to bear the weight of that glory, now the glory of God is revealed in Christ. You'll see there it says, he's not made in the image of God, he is the image of God. Do you pick up there on the difference? He's not a created being made by God, he is God. And Christ has a role in creation. He's the image of God and he is the firstborn of all creation. What Paul is doing here is appraising Christ through a comparison of David, his lineage. And we see that in the statement, the firstborn of all creation. 
The statement comes from Psalm 89, verse 27. If you'd like to flip there, I welcome you to do so. Psalm 89, 27, we find the same language that Paul uses. I want to start in verse 3 for a bit of context here. Psalm 89, verse 3. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. This is referring here to the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The psalm here recounts many of the blessings that came upon David and the favor that the Lord had for him. Now, back to verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It shows that Christ here, the fulfillment of David, does not just rule over Israel, but over all of creation. The idea here is the highest spot, the supreme rank, number one, if you will. Back to Colossians. When we talk about Christ's role in creation, I mean, that can be a puzzling thing for us. But if we situate these these statements in the deity of Christ and the Trinity, it can help us wrap our minds around this. So, again, another cross-references. Back to to John chapter 1, verse 3. It states, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Paul is trying to get the Colossians to see that Christ is God. And as a member of the Trinity, he was involved in the very creation of the world. A lot of scholars will use this term. They'll say he's the agent through which creation exists or through which God created the world decidedly by Christ, the force and the channel through which creation exists. You'll notice that in some of these verses, Paul does more praising than he does explaining. One commentator said this, So then, the one through whom the divine work of redemption has been accomplished is the one through whom the divine act of creation took place in the beginning. Those who have been redeemed know that their Redeemer is also their Creator, Ruler, and the goal of all. And not just that, but all things were created through Him and for Him. Paul then interpolates this section with four couplet descriptors. not going to dive super deep into each of these, but what Paul describes here is not just the things of the earth, but the heavenly things as well. Invisible in the text there means the spiritual world. We're talking about spiritual forces, angelic beings, demonic forces. Christ is supreme over the spiritual world. The Colossians were sort of duped into believing that in order to access God, you had to go through the angels, like it was some spiritual Black Friday or something. The angels were the gatekeeper, and they were the ones that had to be worshipped. 
And Paul says, no, 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 stop. Christ is supreme over the spiritual world. You don't need to work your way through a layer of angels. The angels are in service to God. Christ is enough. Don't worship the angels. That's a good reminder for us as well. I have a friend who is uh, just ever so slightly into angels more than I can affirm. And a lot of the times I just want to tell this person and say, it's not the angels, it's Christ. Don't worship the angels, worship Christ. You ever, maybe you've been sitting in a cosmology class or a physics class, or if you're me, you just watch videos on YouTube. So have you ever seen those uh, how big are the universe videos where they go to explain our solar system and then our galaxy and then the trillions of other galaxies out there? And after maybe watching one of these videos or hearing about this in a lecture, oftentimes we find ourselves feeling very small. At least I do. I'm like, man, we are incredibly small. Now imagine this, that Christ, as being described by Paul in the text, being before all of that and the sustainer of all of that, and not just in a, in a temporal sense, a, a framework of time, but also in a framework of superiority as well. The fact that we keep spinning around the sun, and that's our own solar system, right? Zoom out in the trillions of other galaxies that exist. Think of things being united and sustained together like the cohesion of water molecules. Think big of Christ. And what if we zoom back in and we imagine him sustaining every little thing like the chair that you sit on or the inner workings of your body or the changing of the seasons or the other wonder workings of providence? You ever played the game Kerplunk before? came out in the 1960s. It's been around for a long time. Christ upholds all things like the sticks sustain the marbles. It's like Paul is saying to the church, church, understand the grandeur and the sufficiency and the preexistence of Christ. Sam Storms put it this way, Jesus Christ is the reason, the goal, the aim, the intent, the point, the purpose, the end, the terminus, the consummation, and the culmination of every molecule that moves. Christ is paramount over creation. Second, he is principal in the church. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, I don't know if you know, but there is sort of a crisis of faith that is going on in, in evangelical USA, particularly among my age group. And if you look at uh, this, this culture and what's happening, there's a lot that's, that's going on, including abuse, deconstructionism, doubt, and just a, a giving up of the church in general. The church looks sort of fractured from an onlooker's perspective. And sometimes it feels like things are just spinning out of control. 
And we can get sucked into the drama of that. But Paul has a clear point here. The church needs Christ. He states in clear terms that Christ is the head of the church. You ever seen these churches that are very transcendent and spiritual, but they fail to keep Christ at the head of their operations and their preachings? The churches that fall apart are usually the ones in which they've placed Christ on the back burner or just taken him off completely. And why is that? Well, let's take Paul's example in verse 18. The church is referred to as a body, and this would not be the first time that Paul uses this analogy. I have a couple people that I know that like to use, they have like one or two analogies or illustrations that they use for everything, no matter what. (laughs) And um, it, it seems as if like, do you know any other analogies? Paul has found his analogy, and it's not that it's not fitting, but he says the church is a body. It's not the first time. He uses this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Then again in Romans 12. What is Paul trying to communicate here through this analogy? Simply that Christ is the source of the church, providing for it atonement and guidance and sustenance. I spent some time last year in a, in a healthcare unit. And there's times when the doctor will just pull the plug. They'll stop feeding. They'll, they'll just withdraw everything. And what happens when, when, that, when that takes place? Well, the person usually dies quickly thereafter. That's what it's like to not have Christ at the center of the church. The church cannot exist without him. Paul summarizes the thought in chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Will a car run without an engine? Can a chair stand without any legs? Does a phone work without any battery? Can you have any music without any sound? Can you grow without nutrients? Can you bake without any heat? Can you walk without legs? You get the picture. So it is with Christ. The church is contingent upon him. There is no church without Christ. There's a designation as well in our text. It's firstborn. And in this case, in verse 18, it appears just like it did in verse 15. Except this time, it's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This refers to Christ's superiority in the beginning of creation and his lead in resurrection. And what it details here is that Christ's resurrection inaugurates the resurrection of those who believe in him, who are united to him. Paul puts it in chapter 3, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
He's first in this resurrection, by which those who are saved are resurrected as well, and in which the rebirth and the restoration is set in motion. What's becoming clear, if it hasn't already, is Christ's power, his authority, his rule, his dominion in this creation and in the one to come. The church is a sort of testimony of this new creation. It reveals in part what we wait for when God will bring about a new heavens and a new earth and restore things to their former state of glory, like how good it was uh, in the garden before Adam and Eve fell. It's a little bit like a trailer for a movie that's coming out. You see the, the plot and the intention, and you get, a, you get a picture of what's to come. You know who the characters are, but you don't get the full thing quite yet. Christ is paramount over creation. He's principal in the church. Third and finally, he's primary in reconciliation. Verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Into verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Look at chapter 2, verse 9 for a second. It says this, For in him the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily here. Now, this can be tricky to understand here because at least the version that I'm using here, the ESV, takes a stance on how this verse is to be translated. And there's a, there's a bit of scholarly disagreement. In fact, there's just scholarly disagreement throughout this passage. But nonetheless, I tend to agree here with the ESV's rendering. But it could be translated, or at least one translation could go like this. Because in him it was decreed that all the fullness should take up residence. And that makes us consider whether or not it was the fullness of God, fullness itself, or something else. And here I think that the most appropriate idea is like it is in chapter 2, verse 9. The fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And this fullness of deity is pointing us back to the point that Paul has been making this entire time. I'm just hammer and nails the entire time. Christ is God, and in this case, everything that God is dwells happily in Christ. I can't put it any better than F.F. Bruce. Listen to this. The totality of divine essence and power is resident in Christ. He is the one all-sufficient intermediary between God and the world of humanity. And all of the attributes of God, his spirit, word, wisdom, and glory, are disclosed in him. Wow. Question. Why is Christ head of the church? Because he's God and he shares his spirit. As Bruce says, the same spirit, word, wisdom, and glory as God. Christ has full authority in these things. And do you see the pattern that, that Paul is laying out here? I mean, it's, it's kind of poetic, right? Maybe. Verse 15, why is Christ head over creation? Because he's the image of the invisible God. And he's the firstborn over it all. Verse 18, why is Christ head of the church? Because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Question, answer, question, answer. 
Let's go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 16. If you're familiar with uh, Ephesians 2, then you would know that 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 first part of Ephesians, verse 1 through 10, is the gospel laid out. And then in verses 11 through 22, it is the, the fleshing out of that gospel. So, Paul is talking about in this passage the impacts of the gospel of Christ, which has been extended to the Gentiles as well, as was the plan from the beginning of time. Let's read from verse uh, 11 here for, for, for some context. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's alienation, and then there's peace. And what is it that stands between these two situations? The word for reconcile in verse 16 here is the same as the word for reconcile in Colossians 1.20. Reconciliation indicates a shift from, from that alienation to peace, from we're not on speaking terms to now we are on speaking terms. The hostility is gone and the wrath of God has been appeased by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. When we say wrath, we are not talking about a father who is completely uncontrolled and enraged. We're talking about the controlled wrath of God. I love the way that the author Josh Boyce puts it. The wrath of God is a precise and controlled response to the belittling of his holiness. Simply put, Christ took on himself your sin, and as Luther called it, in a great exchange, he's given to you his righteousness. He stood in the place where you and I deserve to be so that we didn't have to. And that's why you and I can be on speaking terms with God. That's why we have the body of believers, the church, because Christ accomplished it. Amen. Praise God. Paul wraps up the thought in verse 20, at least temporarily, with this idea of new creation reconciliation. He says, all things, whether in heaven and on earth, and there's a rabbit trail that we could chase with that statement here, uh, but, but, but we're not going to. Uh, this is not a, a, a tricks commercial, so we're not going to chase any rabbits. But I think, I think John Piper has a valid point here. He says this, it's not Satan and his angels that will be reconciled back to God. We can see that from verse 2, uh, 15. Instead, um, the context here concerns the new creation, the renewal of creation that groans for this type of future glory redemption, this peace 
Paul says in chapter 3 that Christ is all and in all, speaking of the new self. And so what he does is he situates this verse here in the same new creation context. That in the new heavens and the new earth, everything and everyone will be reconciled. If you were wondering, the text does not communicate universalism. Anyone familiar with chaos and alienation can understand the blessings of peace. The new creation is a place of God's presence and therefore peace by the mediation and sacrifice of Christ. It sounds like the the temple in the Old Testament. And Paul lets us know that Christ is chief in this reconciliation as well. The Bible goes to great lengths to describe to us the distinction of Christ. And yet the question that still lurks in our hearts is this, what isn't Christ supreme over in your life? The human heart is a factory of idols, says John Calvin. If Christ is not supreme, something is. Spurgeon said, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. The thing that we love about Paul here is that the primary thing for him is Christ. He's just swimming in the deep end. And what does he want for the Colossians? What's the concern in writing the letter? To bring Christ up here and to whack away the bad theology. So be honest with yourself. Is he supreme and sufficient for you? Or is it your career? Is it your body image? Is it a guy or a girl, a spouse? Is it the thought of a a nice and easy, relaxing retirement where you can just veg out for the rest of your life? Or is your passion for Christ? Are you doing things uh, for him? Is he Lord over your life? And I'm in the same boat. I have to ask the same questions to myself. You say, okay, Max, that's great. But what is this supposed to look like? Well, for one, it could like, look like spending a little bit less time with the trivial and a little bit more time fortifying your satisfaction in Jesus. It requires effort. A little bit less time with the trivialities, a little bit more time in discipline and devotion. Holy people are disciplined people. And daily choices reveal what the highest priority are. They show us where we find our ultimate comfort for the difficulties of life. If you want Christ to be supreme in your life, seven things. Here we go. Number one, then long after Christ, not after sexual, relational, or material fulfillment. Two, pursue Christ in his word, not on the internet. Three, proclaim the gospel through song, not just in conversation. Four, soak in passages like these and be transformed. Instead of settling for the expedient moral betterment of psychologized theology, it takes time. Be patient. Don't short-circuit progress. And this one's hard for me, in particular. Don't pretend to be holy. Just become holy. 
6. Don't operate out of a past brokenness or trauma. Operate out of trust and faith. 7. Finally, if you're an anxious person or feel defeated or discontentment is a blister on the back of your heel right now and I just I can't take one more step, then rest in Jesus. Rest in his finished work. The beauty of the passage shows us that Christ is definitely praiseworthy. He deserves your time and your attention, your efforts and endeavors. I mean, what are you pouring yourself into right now? Is Christ in that? Poems and hymns just like this one help us do that. They show us of people in the past who have given it all to Christ. No reservation. Who were devoted and and lost in adoration. They help us think right thoughts about Christ and battle bad theology. They help us praise our Lord and Savior. The point is, is clear this morning, but even so, it should produce in us amazement at who Christ is and what he's done. He's God incarnate, fully divine, fully human, and he has full authority over creation and the church. And because of the sacrifice on the cross, the shed blood of Jesus for sins, we can be at peace with God. A mind at perfect peace with God Oh, what a word is this. A sinner reconciled through blood. This, this indeed is peace. By nature and by practice far, how very far from God. Yet now by grace brought nigh to him through faith in Jesus' blood. So near, so very near to God, I cannot nearer be. For in the person of his son, I am as near as he. So dear, so very dear to God, more dear I cannot be. The love wherewith he loves his son, such is his love for me. Let's pray. God, you've given us a picture of the true worthiness of Christ. And Father, I pray that as we go and, and ponder these things, that we would, uh, we would hold Christ supreme in our hearts, that this would be fleshed out in our lives, that we would see Christ for truly as he is, and that we would align our lives in accordance with that. Father, may it be so in, in my heart and in the hearts of these people as well. We ask for your help this week as we do this. And it is in the name of Jesus by which we have this peace, this reconciliation that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. 
You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.